0: Kingdom mandates, and uh, we uh, I've been off of here for a couple of weeks. Um, Ian Brown talked about the Lord's Prayer and Kingdom devotion. Did a great job there, and uh, a lot of people deeply moved by that. And last week we had Chris Spencer up talking about treasures in heaven, and about the idea of having an eye on eternity and a perspective of eternity as we, you know, rather than having the covetous eye, which is great. Great job, and a, a lot of insight. A lot of people are um, still remembering and calling to remembrance what was said on last sunday so let's uh keep letting those things marinate in our spirits and learn how to live it out today we're going to double back and we're going to go into matthew chapter 5 and uh, i've got an interesting passage and i drew the straw straw on this one actually i took it it's probably if a hard one it should be me that does it so matthew 5 31 to 37 today is our passage it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for his sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said from, to people long ago, do not break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for it cannot make even one hair white or black or present. (laughs) All you need to say is simply yes or no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I'm going to start with the easy bit of this passage first. How to make and keep a promise. Now that should be a no-brainer, shouldn't it? Should be something, we well, do we really need a sermon on that? We're apparently not if Jesus had to address it like this. The third commandment in Exodus 20 verse 7 says that we should not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. In other words, we should not be making statements under God which we have no intention of honouring. In Leviticus 19, the Lord says, Do not bring shame on the name of of your God by using it to swear falsely. In Numbers 30, Moses tells the people that a man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. So in the Old Testament, the Lord called for his people to display honesty, integrity and keep their word, particularly if they gave their word to him. The Pharisees had actually massaged these verses a little bit and had actually come up with a very interesting interpretation. They'd rightly worked out that man was fallible, that we would fail at times, that we would mess things up, we had a, that Israel had a track record of not keeping the vows they were making. So the Pharisees looked for ways where God would not hold them accountable for breaking their word the solution was to take the focus away from the vow itself and to focus on the formula for making it. So the sin was not the false vow, but the false use of God's name to make it. So, for example, the third commandment was not that they took the Lord's name in vain, but that they took the Lord's name in vain. And they developed some elaborate rules about vows and they set a formula for what was appropriate and what was not when you made your promises. So the, the vows that were made, including God's divine name, were binding. The ones that didn't have God's name, not so much. It's almost like crossing your fingers behind your back when you make them. See how this goes. To the Pharisees, there were things which mattered so much that you had to keep your word and bringing God's name into the bargain seemed to seal the deal. A man who got caught doing something morally or ethically wrong, might need to bring God's name into it if he wanted to convince others he'd learned his lesson. And that happens today too, don't we? You really want to pack a punch in a promise you make? I swear to God it'll never happen again. Same deal. Whether we're believers or not, we still bring God into the picture when we want to give a promise more weight. But swearing to God that you'd remember the milk on the way home, that was a little bit silly. Swearing on your head, on your life, on your temple, or anything that didn't include God's name could be okay though. And if you forgot, well, since you didn't bring God into it, don't stress. Jesus held great contempt for this system. If you want another read, Matthew 23 is another place to look at this. In that passage, Jesus states that you cannot take God out of any of the promises that you make. He hears every word spoken, so making vows that don't include God are impossible. So instead, Jesus invites us into a different way of thinking. And this feeds into the idea I explored a couple of weeks ago. Kingdom people live different lives. Instead of doing just enough and only what is prescribed, we live out a righteousness that goes beyond. It was true in the area of lust and anger, and it's true in our words. So the better kingdom way is this don't weigh up which vows to put God into and which not to. Don't decide which promises need the most drama which things we need to do the most convincing with. Instead, as kingdom people, in all things, say a simple yes or no and have the integrity of heart to hold up to the two or three letter word that we employ. Oaths are made because man is by nature a liar. We try to do it to hold ourselves to account somehow and yet we're incredibly fallible at keeping them. But we inherit a new nature in the kingdom, a Christ-like one. A Christ-like nature seeks truth. Oaths are superfluous and instead we should simply be known as keepers of our word in the desert of southern Israel during Jesus' time, there was a group of Jews called the Essenes. We don't read much about them in the New Testament. In fact, nothing. They had nothing to do with the Pharisees, but they were known even in secular history as people of their word. Their philosophy was a simple one. They believed that he could not be believed without swearing by God was already condemned. And they never took promises and simply they live by that yes or no idea. More recently, the scholar A.M. Hunter said this, when a monosyllable will do, why waste our breath by adding to it? When a monosyllable will do, yes, no, one syllable, let's all do charades together, why waste breath on anything more? So that's the easy part of that passage. Now for the elephant and the red letters. There's two tougher verses that we can't just sort of gloss over today. But I can say this. By covering all the ground around it, I actually believe the heavy lifting has already been done to the point that the subject of divorce and even its necessity could be completely avoided if the rest of the invitation to kingdom living is taken up. After all, how would our marriages benefit if both parties were completely dedicated to the kingdom and its mandates? Wouldn't that be a great marriage? If we both said we both seek first the kingdom of God, if we both joined together and said we are in a partnership in pursuit of the kingdom, that would be a pretty good start. How much would our marriages benefit if both parties were concerned with living out the Beatitudes? If both parties held anger, hatred, resentment and lust at bay and if we cut off the things that didn't belong, how much would that benefit? And how much pain could be avoided if both parties cut off superfluous drama and words? and simply kept to the two and three letter words we utter in the sight of God. Yes, no, or I do. Three letters there too, see what I did? We do have a element of prevalence when it comes to divorce in modern society and it has become an issue within the life of the of The church its become a bit of a hot potato issue. Some ministers wonder if we're even able to speak into this institution anymore. In recent weeks, I've actually seen Christian married couples announcing their separation in the beautiful neutral territory of Facebook land. That kind of saddens me. But this is nothing new. It's not like this is this this new phenomena. It was a hot topic in ancient Israel as well and the world around them as much as it is in the world today. In the ancient Greco-Roman society, divorce was a little bit too easy. There was no formality required. You didn't have to wait a year and go through the court system. You could actually just write up something and go, honey, you're on your way. Bye. Bye. Sometimes even a verbal statement of that was enough. As you can imagine, divorce in that system was quite widespread. There was a first century poet who wrote of a woman who had been divorced ten times and this was no source of shame in any way. When we take that into account, the ancient Jews by comparison had a pretty tight standard. Both the Old Testament and the rabbis placed great emphasis on the bond of marriage. But Israel wasn't without its scandals or its problems either. And from leadership down, things were not right either in their regard. Jesus seems to be speaking to an apparent permission given here. And that comes from a glancing read of Deuteronomy 24. It suggests that if a man finds something indecent or displeasing in his wife, he could write a certificate of divorce and let her go. A modern theologian, Tom Wright, correctly points out that divorce was essentially permission to remarry. That the woman could go and be cared for by another man if he would have her. But the definition of something indecent was often the subject of legalistic debate. After all, adultery was sort of like a a capital crime in Mosaic law. It had to be something less than that. But big enough to be a deal breaker. And there were some varying results in in everyone's conclusions during that journey. If you remember roughly this time last year, my first sermon to this church, and I know you all remember it well, You may recall that I talked about two prominent rabbis and their school of thought. Back then I talked about binding and loosing. And I talked about two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. Their thinking comes into play in this a bit. Shammai was a bit of a hardliner. And he taught that indecency was something awfully close to adultery and nothing else. It had to be really up there. Hillel swung to the other extreme and suggested that indecency was wide-ranging and people interpreting him thought that this could be as much as burning a toast or a man simply losing interest. Yeah, I just don't know if I love you anymore. He's not doing it for me anymore. A scriptural case study shows that Hillel was speaking to an existing Jewish world view. In Malachi 2, we see people doing what was detestable in the eyes of God. That's the phrase used. It was men divorcing the wives of their youth, breaking the covenant of marriage and trading them in for the younger, more exotic, idolatrous model. A secular study of the time from guys like Josephus himself a divorced Jew indicates that Pharisees tended to side with the liberals in this area. And spiritually this dulled down the concept of God's relationship with his covenant people. The Lord was often presented in Old Testament scripture as the husband of his people and therefore the keeper of his vows to them. And sadly the people were often presented as the adulterous bride because of their constant rejection. Unfortunately, Israel was entering that state even as Jesus was speaking and their families were suffering because of that. A more complete picture of Jesus' teaching on this is found further in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command? that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Interesting word. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? In other words, which rabbi do you side with, Jesus? Strict Shammai or liberal Hillel? And Jesus seems to take both of them and be very dismissive with them. And instead, like he did with all the rabbis, it has been said, but I say. He was taking something he didn't talk about things like, oh, there's this thing that, that kind of makes sense this way. I reckon it's, we're supposed to interpret it this way. Jesus takes full authority and goes, I say this. That's a big thing to listen to there. I say. And he goes on to say some simple points about his take on marriage. Any part of the religious thinking of his day would be challenged. And it's no less challenging for us today as well. Jesus makes some basic points. First up, you scribes and Pharisees are anticipating the need to escape from your marriages. You're already thinking about the way out of it before it begins. You're looking for permission to break a sacred vow. And today we have a world that kind of does that. We've got the prenup signed even before the ceremony takes place. We're anticipating what happens should everything break up. We think about what happens if it all falls down. And Jesus says instead I'm all about preserving its institution because it demonstrates the kingdom of a covenant keeping God. In God's eyes you become one, so live like that's the case and use all moral means necessary to preserve what you have. His next point is this, you're making what Moses said a command rather than a concession. This was Moses recognizing the hardness of Hebrew hearts, not a reflection of God's intentions for the marriage union. Essentially, Moses was permitting an act for the sake of avoiding an even greater evil that might come about. Who knows what sort of abuse could happen if a man had to keep someone around, how abusive he might become towards her, how much harm she might actually face because of that. So Moses said, okay, well, we may need to find her another place. But it wasn't God's instruction. I see this response in Jesus as well. You Pharisees are treating marriage as a cheapened commodity and Israel for a few hundred years now has demonstrated that. But I don't see it that way. It's deeply important to God, so tread carefully here and don't consider it such a cheapened commodity there. In case anyone is unclear, Jesus expects us to preserve our marriages. And using every other principle of the Sermon of the Mount, do what it takes to stick it out if we can. But failing all that, even Jesus sees a point where it might not work out. Where the covenant or element of marriage may be broken beyond repair for some. His own earthly parents may have had to work this issue through. Joseph initially sought to divorce Mary, remember? Because she was found with child. It was a good definition of an indecent thing that he found in her. And he, the scriptures even call him just because of his thinking. The one and only real reason to tap out of marriage in Jesus' view is summed up in our passage with the word adultery or sexual immorality. For many marriages, this is the ultimate deal-breaker, right? And even Jesus thought so. Now, as I gave that some thought, as I wrestled with that, years ago I wrestled with this, and this week I wrestled with this. I've had to work up a sweat on this message all week, you've got no idea. Thought about a few things, and one of them is this: I've been around the church since 1987. I had a mullet. It was the 80s, and I can count on one hand the number of Christian marriages which ended after an affair occurred, and it was never after the first time. Don't get me wrong, I have seen many more Christian marriages dissolve, but rarely on this issue. Instead, I've been amazed at how believing couples actually bounce back from that. How change and reconciliation can come out of such a dark thing. The kingdom is also a place of reconciliation. And where two frail kingdom people operate like that, there can be beauty in that. And it can demonstrate restoration in a beautiful way. the more common thread I've seen in breakup is twofold. Like the ones I've read about in Facebook land, people who simply gave up. I think that breaks Jesus' heart and it breaks mine too. The other equally heartbreaking ones have been those who have had issues of abuse abuse at home. I know a number of women who have had to leave that setting and churches have made these people feel riddled with guilt over their actions. I've had to grapple with this personally because of some of my upbringing. And I've had to do a lot of work of helping other people grapple with this. The result of my grappling is this. In the Greek, in this passage, two words are used in, and the same English appears to us in, on, in, in this. The usual word for adultery is mochaio and this specifically speaks to the extramarital bedroom antics. Micaio is used to speak of the state of the remarried person in these verses, but Jesus states the only valid reason to divorce is the word porneo. It has links to certain words today which we can all sort of work out. And it comes up as fornication in Paul's letters. This word can encompass all forms of sexual sin and distortions. And I also believe this includes all distortions of intimacy as well. One theologian, R.V. Tasker, concludes that the words porneia is a comprehensive word, including adultery and fornication, but also unnatural vice. In my years of ministry, I've concluded that spousal abuse is every bit the distortion of intimacy that cheating on your spouse is. And that allowing yourself to remain under such abuse, to allow our kids to stay in that environment, can be equally as immoral as the abuse you endure. It is right to leave that setting. I see concession provided here. I hesitate to call it permission. I do see concession to divorce in the Sermon on the Mount to include gaining freedom from those sort of abusive situations. If you've been a victim in this regard, I firmly believe Jesus, the avenger of the widow in the flesh, stands with you in that tough decision. Be free. Do not look at yourself as an adulterer because of that circumstance that you find yourself in. Proclaiming freedom to the captives is part of the gospel, right? To marry or remarry is a difficult question to answer after that. An unofficial survey in the room would probably find a 50-50 split. A careful reading of scholarly debate finds a 50-50 split. A discussion amongst the ministers' association finds an almost 50-50 split. So everywhere I go, I'm going to annoy or or offend 50% of the crowd no matter what decision I take on this. Beautiful, sweat-reddened thing. (laughs) The beautiful thing about being Baptist is freedom of thought and discussion over peripheral issues. That peripheral issues definition is quite wide-ranging in Baptist circles. In Victoria, there are people who actively support um, same-sex marriage who are on the state council of the Baptist churches. So, wide-ranging peripheral thought here in some You have to admit there are compelling cases for and against out there as people prayerfully consider a spiritual, scriptural answer. So when it comes to me, I do have convictions and I'm able to talk to you privately, but publicly I'm going to plead the Baptist fifth. (laughs) Why? Because in the name of that freedom of thought, I'm going to allow convictions to form amongst ourselves on that. That said, ensure you you form any convictions on this matter or anything else in Scripture on a healthy interpretation of Scripture. Try not to split hairs on the red letters. You become like a Pharisee then. Are we going to really pull apart this word and try to determine what he really meant? Jesus spoke into a worldview where they were already splitting hairs. And Jesus made some pretty direct statements to a world that was already trying to split hairs on Scripture. Remember that. And don't do what I've done in times past and avoid that process. I even once bought into the well-known statement, Jesus never did it, Buddha might have, they have a right to be happy. It's a Buddhist myth, it's not scripture. We can be joyful, we can be blessed, Jesus has already shown us that that exists. But these things go well beyond the concept of happiness that having a person on your arm might meet, might not, might do, just to meet a need of intimacy. The kingdom agenda calls us to relinquish our rights and accept God's complete sovereign reign and rule in our life and live under His perfect welfare as a result. But there is freedom of thought there. When it comes to marriage, Recent research has shown some good things. In faith communities, marriage actually flourished compared to the world. If you're anything like me, you've probably heard some pastors thump the pulpit and go, "The marriage rate, the divorce rate in the church is equal to the divorce rate in the world. We're not doing any better. We've got to pick up our game." Blah blah blah. I've heard that said a lot of times. And when I've asked for facts, when I've asked for research, they often draw a blank. The worldly stats of 50% are not as accurate as the media makes us believe either. A recent batch of research indicates that people in faith do better. Catholic couples are 31% less likely to divorce. Protestant couples are 35% less likely to divorce. Modern Jews that took Jesus to heart. 97% less likely to divorce. Even people in Islamic faith fare really, really well too. I'm happy this is happening because it means our marriages still have a great shot of demonstrating the kingdom. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to wind up here. as I think about this teaching, I've got two basic applications. The first one is really simple. Keep your word. (laughs) Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Don't make it a dramatic thing, but live like every word that leaves your mouth is heard by God. Yes, no, I do. And as I think about the points Jesus is making, I'm also called to remembrance about two sets of digits in my head. S7493 and 160601. You're going, what are those numbers? S7493 is the number I've recently received from the South Australian government. It's my marriage number that shows up on certificates. It's my permission to conduct weddings in the state of South Australia and it comes because the Baptist Churches has nominated me to the government so I've been recognised both at denominational level and governmental level to be able to speak on the subject of marriage and conduct them. As a result, my personal convictions about marriage kind of matter because I'm the one doing them. It forces me to really think about my, my convictions about this matter, my understanding of this matter because in a public sphere my convictions get challenged a whole lot more than yours because I'm the one having to do it. When I think about come from that angle my convictions are that marriage is sacred and must not be taken lightly. It is one major way that we demonstrate the kingdom. From Matthew 19, I'm convinced that God created marriage between man and woman. Once joined, it should not be divided for the two become one. And Jesus used a very common teaching method there to actually find a story of greatest weight to be able to illustrate his point. And he goes back to the Genesis account to make his point. A divorce must be the last resort of any marriage arrangement. I deliberately formed this sermon at a cafe, not an office. I had to see non-church people. I had to imagine myself preaching to them, not so much you. I had to assume that some in that room would be in marriage two, three or even more. Making those people, or anyone here in the room for that matter, who are in that situation, making you divorce and go back to spouse number one, is not the response to this passage and neither is living in guilt or doubt either. Making what you have now work as best as it can is your response to this passage. Your demonstration of the kingdom now in your current setting matters. Do what you have, make what you have now work for God's glory. If you're in that spot, learn from the past. Do more to make Jesus the centre. See counsellors. Grow in self-awareness. Keep your, to your yes and your I do in what you have now. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17 has an interesting principle here. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when, the, when God first called you. If God called you to his own in your second or third dance... Remain there and dance with all your might. You're in the era of grace. You are now in the kingdom. Make that kingdom expression work. 160601. Jen, what's that? <laughs> it's the day we got married. And now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 16th of June, 2001. (laughs) I know. (laughs) This number gives me almost 16 years of experience to reflect on how to live out what Jesus taught. As a kid who grew up in distorted intimacy, if I can get real with you, I take note of Jesus' instruction here of not allowing lust, adultery or porneia into our marriages. Let's ensure that we do not distort the intimacy that we have in any way. Guard what the Lord has put together and in His eyes has made one. As a young man who didn't get the best role models, I take note of Paul in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church and wives, be submitted to the godly spiritual leadership that his Christ-like love provides. As a kid who grew up in family brokenness, I take on the words and teaching of Christ. Treasure the institution the way Jesus does. Let's not look for the ways that can go wrong but let's be proactive about the way it can flourish if you're single don't enter it lightly it's a massive deal in heaven and the church needs to show that it's a massive deal on earth too together let's make marriage work let's make relationships in general work let's live out a reconciled kingdom expression at all times in all that we do and let's be keepers of our word Yes, be yes. Let your no be no. And let the world around us see us in a really great light because of that. We can demonstrate the kingdom in some really powerful ways out of today. Let's stop. Let's pray for one moment. Jesus, we acknowledge the toughness of such a passage and we notice that it is attributed to your words and we never want to take that lightly. Lord, help us to keep our vows, keep our, prom- keep our word. Let us remember that every word we speak is done in the sight of God, whether we say I promise or not. Help us to really demonstrate integrity in this matter. Let us, like the Essenes, be known as people who simply just said yes and did it and said no and meant it. For those who are married, no matter what they've come from, no matter what the circumstances or no matter what number it is, I pray your blessing and your hand to rest on every marriage in this place. Let us all seek to preserve the institution that it is. For those who have had to endure the pain of separation, Lord, I pray your peace and presence in their life right now. Let them know that you are truly near. And as you are a husband to your people and we the bride, let us relish the covenant relationship we have in you. Let us find what we need in you. Let your peace reign supreme in every person's life here. Let it be present in everyone's spirit. as we grapple with parts of this not covered, not explained help us to form convictions based on your word and based on your spirit let us not succumb to human traps without humanistic ideas but let every conviction we form be birthed in your word and give us freedom to live out this kingdom life for you Let us actively demonstrate what the kingdom is all about. Let our conduct in all things show what that is like. Jesus, you reign, you rule. We love you today and we so depend on you. We give you glory.